Okay, there, Saints, Matthew chapter 15. Let's begin by simply bowing our hearts. Father, we do thank you for how you continually draw us to your heart. You do that, Lord, and, and it's amazing as we see just that love that you have for us, the motivation of everything that you do. And then, Father, once we see your heart, everything that you actually do, we're already aware that it's because of your great love that you have for us. And then, Father, teach us, teach us that valuable lesson of what it is between the internal and the external. Simply doing something on the outward or allowing you to do that deeper work on the inward. So often, Lord, as we come into New Year's, we make resolutions and we say we're going to fix this or change this. And, and Father, we want an instant resolve. We just don't realize, Lord, that there's a work that has to be done inward. And once that inward work is done, the outward doesn't seem as fast. But it's, it's a longer work. It's a more beautiful surrender, Lord, because... It's not just something that we do for the moment, but it's a change of our heart, a change of a lifetime. And, and it becomes a lifestyle, Lord, not, not just a, a movement for a day or a week or a month. And so again, we simply ask that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts and give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right there, saints. Um, Matthew chapter 15 Beginning in verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying, Honor your father and your mother and he who Curse his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. And then he need, then he need not honor his father or his mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Verse 7, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men i want you to see just a, a point to this because in verse 8 and 9 of this this passage especially verse 8 he makes a statement that people draw near to me with their mouth they honor me with their lips, but their heart. If you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, if you're a note taker, make, make a note of that. Your heart is far from me. You have all this external thing that are going on. It says you're, you're, you, know, you draw near with the mouth and the lips. And, but the bottom line is in verse 9, in vain they worship me. There's this emptiness of their worship. And, and the reason there's this emptiness in worship is because the bottom line is, is just there's no heart. 
And what we're going to see here is through this chapter is if you are familiar with what we've been dealing with, we talked, you know, initially coming into Matthew, we talked about the coming of the king, dealing with his birth, the coronation of the king, through his baptism and through the temptations and everything else. We went through the constitution of the king as we looked at the Beatitudes and the similitudes. Then we saw the conduct of the king where he literally, you know, walked his talk. He did exactly what he did, proved his authority. Then we begin to see these challenges to the king's authority and to the king's power. So we come into these chapters now, we're, we're looking at a sense of the confiding of the king, where, where Jesus is now teaching anyone who would open up, this is the heart of the kingdom. And that's what we're beginning to see, where he's opening up, he's revealing himself in a deeper way. Now, as we come here into this 15th chapter, initially, they have this problem because they're wanting these disciples to do an external cleansing. And it's a ceremonial cleansing. So it, it isn't one where you're looking at the, um, their bad hygiene. That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at ceremonies. Now, I want to give you just one verse to, to jot down to focus on, to keep in your heart as we go through this. Um, but it opens up this. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. And it declares this, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Let me just kind of break this down to you. In Hebrews 13, 9, where Jesus here is, you know, shows that he doesn't change, he lets them know, do not be carried about with various strange doctrines. You're, you're looking to that same thing that we were kind of focusing on, where people draw near to their, with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, their heart is far from them, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And as he comes through here, he says, be careful about these various and strange doctrines. Things that say, do this, don't do this. And what it is, is, is we're going to see that a lot of these, as they will be opening up here at the very beginning of Matthew 15, they talk about it's a tradition of the elders. Why aren't you doing these things? Like verse 2, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? Well, he makes that statement, of course, in Hebrews 13, 9, do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established with grace. Those are the two things in, in Christian doctrine that is, is key. Let the heart be established by grace. You realize everything that we have is grace. Nothing do we deserve. And, you know, it's been said that there's, you know, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I believe that. It's also said that it's getting what you do not deserve. I believe that also. Grace is just this outpouring of things that while we do not deserve what it is, but it's the heart that needs to be established through all of the things that God has done himself as the Father, as he's done through the Son and the work of the Son as he does through the Spirit in filling us with the Spirit, giving us the ability to understand the words, giving us the ability to walk these words, allowing it to become power in our lives. And so through all of this, what we're seeing here 
is it's important. Don't be carried away with the various and strange doctrines. For it's good that the heart be established with grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. The food doesn't profit you. I mean, you, you think about this and you're like, okay, well, you know, some food profits you more than other, correct? Well, it, it's true. You can eat vegetables and it'll profit your body. You can eat a burger, you know, with cheese and bacon and it'll profit your tongue. I mean, you got to profit somewhere in there. But if you're only focused on one thing, that the food itself doesn't make you better or not better to God. And we'll be seeing this in a moment, how it's not the food, it's not how you eat the food, it's not how you prepare the food. Those aren't the things. So here in Matthew 15, verse 1, the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. They literally travel up to Galilee and they, they come to Jesus and they're, they're now trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Why do your disciples transgress the, the, the traditions of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? What is he trying to say? There's a parallel passage, jot it down, found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. It begins this in verse 1, and I'm going to read um, just the first four verses initially. We'll come back here in time. But it begins this, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, by saying unwashed, it literally means common hands. They haven't been ceremonially cleansed. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Verse 4 and 5, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? So this is a thing. It's not simply a, a cleansing thing. It's not, you know, um, dealing with hygiene. It's dealing with ceremony. It's dealing with this outward expression not an inward work. And so what happens is the very focus of the Pharisees initially are on an external ceremony, not an internal. And what happens is when you grasp that one truth, the rest of the chapter begins to make sense because that's the foundation of what's happening. He's shifting now as he's you know revealing himself He's going to point out to these people who are all on the external what the true relationship is, and that's internal. It's about having that heart. It's about having the sacrifice. So what they say in verse 2 is, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. At this point, we noted here that it is a tradition of the elders. So Keep this in mind. This here is a rabbinic tradition. It's not a mosaic tradition. Why am I saying it this way? The rabbis would teach ceremony. In other words, as Moses would speak through a law, the rabbis would then take that law and expand on it in a way that they felt it was righteous. So 
you could call it this. You could call it a commentary on Moses. And if you've ever read commentators, you'll realize that they're not always solid. It's the view of the man, how he thinks it should be, which is why as we're going through the scriptures, what you're going to realize is that most of what I'm sharing you isn't commentary. Most of what I'm teaching you is a systematic theology. What's the difference? Commentary is just simply, you know, commenting on a thing. Systematic theology is taking the principle and seeing how does that principle flow through scripture. What happens to a commentary is this. A commentator is going to read another commentary and say, oh, I like this. I like what he says. I'm going to add it to mine. But you're just repeating something that someone else already said. But when you're taking the foundation of Scripture and you're applying, say, this found Scripture is now giving you the basis of the truth, everything changes because you're simply believing Scripture, not someone's interpretation of it. And so when you have this rabbinic tradition, um, not a Mosaic declaration, not a, you know, not a tradition of Moses, but as a rabbis who took the law, they would literally have to have... An, Here's the, the rabbinic tradition. You would take um, basically an eggshell and a half. That's how much water you do. You take an eggshell of your half and you, you hold your hands up and you'll pour the water over your hands and let it drip down. And then you'll, you'll, you'll rub your hands and you'll turn your hands upside down and you'll pour the eggshell and a half over your hand and let it run down the other way. Why do you do that? Well, after you've, you know, had your hands clean it run down through your elbows you rub your hand to the right hand rubs to the left the left hand rubs the right you do the eggshells again they say now i'm ceremonially clean now and why do they choose it i don't know literally i don't know why they chose this i looked into it i said what was the basis of it no one has a clue other than this rabbi had a really cool idea, and everyone said, yeah, that makes us feel really righteous. Let's do this. That's a tradition. And when you understand traditions, traditions is things that we do on an external that we don't even know internally why we do them. I mean, some of your families have Christmas traditions, Thanksgiving traditions. I love the, um, there's this one story, and you know, I normally don't tell stories, but this one just kind of, I couldn't resist, and I, I prayed about not saying it like four or five times, but God just keep putting it on my heart, you got to share this, because this is what tradition is. There was this young woman who had made a pot roast for her new husband, and what she did is she cut the ends of the pot roast off, and she put it in the pan, and she cooked it, and all of a sudden, the husband's like, wow, this is good, but why did you cut the ends off? And she says, you know, I don't really know why I cut the ends off. I cut the ends off because my mom always cut the ends off. Maybe it has something to do with, with how it's cooked or, you know, so, you know, the juices flow and it, and it cooks it and it's juice. I don't know. All I know is that my mom always did it this way. That's how we cook the, 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 the pot roast. And so he said, all right, well, one day this guy was with his mother-in-law and his wife. And he asked, he asked his mother-in-law, why, why do you guys cut the ends of the pot roast off before you cook it? And she says, well, you know, I really don't know, but it's what my mom always did. And she always cooked, cut the ends of the pot roast off and it was good pot roast. And so I've always cut the ends off. 
And, well, he goes, well, your daughter does too. Well, eventually he got to the point that he was visiting grandma, grandma pot roast. And so he went to her and he says, listen, my wife does this. You know, your daughter does it. Why? Why do you cut the ends of the pot roast off before you cook it? Well, she said, well, because I only had a little pan and I couldn't cook it whole. I had to cut the ends off in order to fit it in the pan. That launched a whole tradition. The mom sees it, the daughter sees it, and I'll guarantee that the granddaughter, it's tradition. We don't know why we do it, but it looks good. It's external. It's something that, that moves us emotionally, but it has, you know, it has no real purpose behind it other than this is what we do. And so when you have their traditions that are there, the sad thing is it's hard to break a tradition. When you've been doing it this way for so long and all of a sudden you don't do it. When my daughter was three years old, she made this, um, she went to the school for the deaf and hard of hearing and, and it was just one of these classes where she could begin to kind of learn how to talk and socialize and, and um, it was the beginning of her, her schooling and she was three years old, three and a half, and she made this little yellow cardboard star and she painted it yellow and she put on glitter and on the back of it was this um, clothesline clip. And so she brought it home and we thought, well, let's stick it on our tree. And so we put it on our tree and, and we put this light behind it. It had a really pretty glow and it was just her little star. And we had this star on the tree for years. So it was almost our tradition for over 20, 25 years, we had her star sitting on the top of the tree. One year we didn't do it. My daughter was a little devastated. <laughs> what happened to the star? Why is that? It just, we're, we're changing traditions. We're just going to move something. You can have the star if you want. No, I don't want it. You know, you guys keep it, but we'll hold on to it and maybe we'll put it back up again. But at this point, maybe when your kids are old enough, we'll give it to you or we'll give it to them. And this is, you know, this came from you and they can start their own tradition. But traditions, we don't always know why they're doing it. And this is what happens here. They were saying, why, verse 2, do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And all it was was a ceremonial cleansing. Why aren't you doing it the way we do it? Why aren't you doing it the way the elders taught us to do it? Well, he answered and said, okay, well, you guys are worried about us transgressing your tradition, something that's simply an external ritual. And so he answered and he said, well, let's take a step up. Because what happened is, is you guys are saying that we are, my disciples are transgressing the traditions of the elders. What you're transgressing is the commandment of God. So you put traditions of elders on this side of the scale. You put here the commandments of God on that side of the scale. And where's the weight? The traditions of the elders have nothing. So in verse 3, he answers it. Why do you also transgress the commandments of God? And then he adds this condemnation because of your traditions. See, you make a tradition and you elevate that tradition. You elevate this word of man, these traditions of men, and you elevate it to literally the same degree or even higher than the doctrines of God. And the traditions of men are simply how one man sees the word of God. But God's going to speak to you. This is what you walk. So verse 4 
For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. So the two verses that you're looking at, he quotes first from um, Exodus 20, 12, where he says, Honor your mother and your father. And then he says, But he who curses, let him be put to death. That's found in Exodus 21, verse 7. And so those are the verses that here Jesus now quotes from Exodus, saying, Honor your father and mother. He who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. He's saying, if, if you are going to receive anything to me, sorry, you can't, because right now I've given myself over to God. It declares this. In Mark chapter 7, I told you I would go back. I'm going to read from verses 10 through 13. I'm going to get 9 through 13. Mark 7, 9 through 13. But he said them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. He's saying you're rejecting the commandment so that you can keep something of a tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift of God. So Corban simply means it's dedicated, it's been given over. And so what happens is this, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, thus making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what happens is this. If I go into my house and I point to this and say, this is Corbin, this is Corbin, this is Corbin. That's a tradition, something that I could do. What I'm saying is this is dedicated to God, and this is dedicated to God, and this is dedicated to God. So in other words, you can't have it. I can't give it to you. You can't even loan it because it's God. However, it's in my house. And I'll still hold on to it for God. Now, you think about it. If it's really Corban, if it's really dedicated to God, dedicated to God, why aren't you giving it to the temple? Why aren't you giving it to the tabernacle? But yet they would say, no, this is Corban, this is Corban. And then they would take it one more step and say this. Mom, Dad, you kind of offered me to God. I'm Corban. And so I can't help you out. Because if I did, I would be dishonoring God. I've been given completely over to God. And I can't take what is God's, which is all the money that he put in my hand and all the food that he put in my house and all these things. I can't help you out, Mom and Dad, because right now it's Corban. It's given to God. And I can't lessen. I, I couldn't live with myself if I helped you have food for the weekend. This is crazy. This is what they were doing. And so they were saying, this is their tradition. I can call this Corban. Now, once I call it Corban, because of that tradition, rather than saying the tradition is an error because it goes against scripture, which is honor your father and mother. That's the commandment. That's what's priority. But they allowed their tradition to usurp it so they didn't have to honor their mother and the father. So if the mother and father had a need, it's like, well, sorry, I'd help you. I, and I really, really want to help you, mom and dad. But this is Corban, and I'm Corban, and I can't give you any money. I can't give you any food because it's dedicated to God. 
absolutely amazing that this was the heart. So Jesus, and these are the guys that are saying, oh, your disciples are literally transgressing the tradition of the elders. How could you possibly let them? And she's like, what do you mean transgressing the tradition of the elders? You're transgressing the commandment of God by applying your traditions. So you're doing this external thing to make you look pious and righteous. But the bottom line is this. Your heart is wicked. Your heart doesn't want to honor. That's the difference between the external and the internal. They're saying, the external is washing your hands like your traditions. And Jesus says, the internal is what? You eat the food with joy. You eat the food worshiping God. You don't worry about the foods. And here, he now says, but what you guys are doing, you're only practicing this external tradition of the Corban, of having this gift of God. You are practicing the internal, loving your parents, loving you know, and, and ministering to them. So in verse 5, he says, But you say, whoever says to his father or brother, whatever profit you might have received from me, if I would help you out if I could, but that kind of profit, it's Corban, it's a gift to God, then you need not honor his father or his mother. Thus, you've made this commandment of God to no effect by your tradition. So what does he do? Well, verse 7, he kind of just puts it right out there. He does one word, <laughs> hypocrites. You're coming to me about my disciples, about something that means nothing, and yet you yourselves are transgressing something so far greater. You are hypocrites. And he makes this statement, well, did Isaiah prophesy? And so Isaiah prophesied in chapter 29, verse 13 in our Bibles. That's where we find it. It says, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So we begin to see here that they have this incredible understanding where it says, in vain they worship me. So there's just this whole area where they're trying to worship him with, this is how I eat my food, and this is the food that I eat, and that becomes a worship. And remember when we read there in Hebrews 13, 9, do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have, been, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. They're so caught up on all of the little externals they're not focusing on where's my heart in this. And I don't have to have my heart right as long as I do this external. So I can tithe my mint and my cumin. I can tithe every little thing. But my heart has no desire to worship God. I just want you to see this external. And as we note this, he makes that incredible statement. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They, they honor me with their lips. They're talking about, oh, God is so good. We need to do this ceremonial cleansing. But yet, God is not so good that they need to keep his commandment. God is so wonderful that I'm going to wash my hands, but God is not so authoritative and wonderful that I'm going to honor my father and mother. And he only points out one, one of the things that they're simply hypocritical in and so as soon as he does this, he calls them hypocrites, quote from Isaiah. Then in verse 10, 
He says, and when he had called the multitudes to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. So as, as either they were a part of what was going on as, as the Pharisees approached him publicly, or after they approached him privately, he now goes to the multitude along with his disciples, but he said to them, hear and understand. It's not just listen, but you got to grasp this truth that is here. He says in verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. We understand that that, that is the heart of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, remember when we went through that passage? He was talking, of course, to the leaders again, and he said in, in Matthew 12, 34, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You've already made that statement, and now he's saying, listen, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, what comes out of the mouth, that is what defiles a man. Now, why is that? Well, what goes in, he answers in verse 13, he said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, even both will fall into a ditch. But Peter answered and said, explain this parable to us. Are you still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters into the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. What do we see here? His disciples simply, you know, come and, and as he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Why? Well, because anything goes into the mouth, he says in verse 17, it goes into the stomach and it's eliminated. So there's really no defilement. But what comes out of the mouth is, is there in the abundance of the heart. And we've noted that when we said, hey, listen, if it comes out your mouth, be careful about that because it's there in the heart and it's abundantly there in your heart. You can't say when something comes out, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. That may be true. You didn't mean to say it, but it's an abundance of the heart and it's coming out. You, you, you believe it, although you didn't mean to say it. And so we're noting here, he says, it's, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but it what goes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now, as soon as he makes that statement, verse 12, his disciples came to him and said, you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying. And Jesus was, oh no, I'm so sorry, I offended <laughs> These Pharisees, the ones that keep wanting to kill me. And, and so, you know, when we take a look at that, it's so incredible that they come and say, yeah, do you know that, the, you know, you offended them? Remember now, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, this is a great passage when you want to say, oh, I'm sorry I offended the Pharisees. Because in Matthew 12, 14, remember it said that when the Pharisees went out 
and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Now, you think about this. They want to kill Jesus, and the disciples aren't too concerned about that because they don't know really what's going on, and Jesus has offended them. Oh my goodness, someone needs to impeach Jesus or something because we're seeing here that there's these two standards that are going on. They have no problem. I want to kill Jesus, but oh, woe to the man who offends me. So they, they go and say, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? So we, we realize here when they were offended, it means to make incensed. It means to make indignant. And what's interesting is this, is the Pharisees, rather than being humble, rather than being broken, rather than being repentant, became indignant, became prideful, became offended. And I think be careful because there's a lot of times the word of God is being declared and either you're reading in your devotions or you're hearing it in the message and all of a sudden when something hits a little too close to home, what's your initial reaction? Are you offended because of it? Why would Pastor Lowell ever read that passage? Well, because we're just reading the word of God. Somewhere along there, we need to heed this. We need to hear this. Well, what we're recognizing is when they heard the word of God, they were now offended. Why? All they did was he just quoted from Isaiah. Now, what can they do? They can repent and be right with God. But they're choosing not to follow Jesus Christ. They're choosing to reject who he is. They're choosing to reject his words. And so when the, the disciples came in verse 12, said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? And he answered and said, every plant which my father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they will fall into a ditch. Now, why does he say every plant? Initially, the very first thing that he does is when they said, they were offended. He gives them a parable. Every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. Now, why is he saying this? Just jot this down. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 30. It declares this, another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and they went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and it produced a crop, and then tares also appeared, the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now what does Jesus say? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them into the bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. It's interesting that what Jesus is saying, well, did you know that they were offended? He goes, listen, they're tares. <laughs> they are tares. So he says, Every plant which my heavenly father has not planted is going to be uprooted. 
He's letting them know when they're offended. like, listen, these are tools of the enemy. And they are going to be offended at anything that is light. In other words, when you're in the darkness and someone turns on the light, everyone's offended by it. Why? Because it's light coming into the darkness. And darkness, they, they love it, the darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And it's better to do evil deeds in the darkness, not in the broad daylight. So we're seeing here that he simply tells them, every plant which my father, Heavenly Father is not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. One of the saddest things is when people who are legalistic try to make legalistic disciples. Now I'll tell you what, and they, they don't really have a lot in them, but they have this ability to parrot their leaders, and they make no sense at all. And that's why it's so important study to show yourself approved. You have to understand the word, and you have to understand why it is. And here he says, these guys are blind, and they're blind leaders of the blind. So they're now here grabbing a blind guy and say, hey, let, let's follow me. I know where I'm going. He falls into a ditch, drags the other guy into a ditch with him. And so he says, that's where they're going. They're going off the road. They're not going to be following the way that God would want. So in verse 15, Peter answered and said, explain this parable to us. Now, I, I want you to focus on just a little bit of what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, explain this parable to me. He said, explain it to us. Now, I don't know if Peter was looking around at these other disciples and thinking, you know what? Um, they need to understand this one. Can you explain it to us? And I'll just include myself in it because I know these guys, they, they really, I'm looking at their eyes, they're all glassy. They're like deers in the headlight. Could you explain it to us? Or Peter was saying, I don't get this at all, but I don't want to be, could you just explain it to me? So I'm going to include everybody else. Hey, could you explain to us? And, and I think, uh, how important is it to say, you know, if I don't understand, just explain it to me. And then if they don't get it, then they'll say, me too, me too. But Peter does it. I think it's, it's funny the nuances of what we do, how we have no problem including others into the fact that maybe it's just me. You know, and sometimes it's not always in us, it's just in me. But Peter says, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you? <laughs> he, he goes to Peter and he gets like, it, it isn't about the us, it's about the you. And remember, Peter always, he's this us guy. Because when, when Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me? And, you know, there at the end of John chapter 21, he goes, oh, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm really, I have affection for you. And he says, okay, we'll tend my sheep. And he says, Peter, you know, do you love me? He says, Lord, you, you know, I'm really affectionate for you. And he says, okay, well, you know, feed my lambs. And then and lastly, he says, okay, Peter, are, are you um, really affectionate for me? And Peter begins to weep because he said, now affection, not do you really love me. And then he says, you know, all right, then, then, then feed my sheep. And then he said, when he told him how he was going to die, Peter said, what about him? What about him? And Peter, Jesus said, what is that to you? Well, what is it to you? What if I want him to live forever? What is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. It's not about the us. So once again, Peter says, explain to us. Jesus said, are you still without understanding? And he so, so he says, do you not understand that what enters the mouth goes into the stomach is eliminated, but those things that pursue out of the mouth 
come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. He lets them know that it's not an external issue as far as what is outside and you're putting into your mouth. It's an internal issue. What is the inside coming out of your mouth? And this is the key to so much about Christianity, that we have this tendency sometimes as Christians to walk an external walk so that everybody sees it. But inside we're still in turmoil wondering why is it that I'm sensing worship everywhere else, but I can't enter it in. I'm doing this external thing. I'm showing it external, but I don't have it on the inside. There's a problem is because what? You're not dealing with the heart issue. Let God deal with your heart, and it may not happen right away, because we get problem with the outside. Fix this, fix this, fix this. And these outside issues bother us, and we think if we can fix the outside, then my inside is going to be at peace. That's not the case. If you fix the outside, you're going to find something else with the outside. There's people who will very often move, and then move again, and then move again. And whenever they get upset, and they get you know, this internal, they, they move to a new place to change their what? Their surroundings. I got to change my surroundings. I have to move from Southern California where it's really nice and warm and I can surf every day. And I've got to go to Wisconsin and I just have to go into where, you know, it's, it's sub-zero winters. And I got I to gotta do that. I got to change my scenery. And uh, <laughs> amen, brother. And, and, and so, you know, you, people think I got to change. And if I change the, 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 the external, then I'm going to be different. Well, what happens is this. It changes for just a while, but then what happens? Then the same things begin to happen. And the reason they begin to happen is because you go with you. The internal goes with you. And so there's such a thing where it's always about let's fix the external. Let's change the external versus let God deal with the internal. I don't know if you've ever had a relationship with either a roommate or a spouse or children and what they do is there's this external thing that they do um it's it's one of those things where, where why do you always do that why why is it that you you know you, you could take an extra step but you don't and and so you, you want them to fix this external thing fix this external thing fix this external thing and and Keep in mind that you're so consumed about fixing an external thing and God may be trying to deal with a heart and something that's far more deeper and richer and more powerful that when that gets fixed, then not only will the external thing that bothers you be fixed, but like eight or nine other things will be as well. Sometimes God wants us to deal with, let him deal with those huge issues in our heart and we focus on the fruit like this orange or that orange, he focuses on the root, what's coming up the tree, what is at the core of what's going on. So heart issues. Heart issue is whatever comes out of the heart. And he makes that statement in verse 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault, witnesses, and blasphemies. Pretty much those are all self-explanatory. Evil thoughts, of course, the things of the mind, murders. So you have inside your head, things that are outward. Now, murders, as we take a look, we think it's just simply, you know, killing a person physically. But you can, there are times you can kill someone's reputation. I don't know if you've heard this term, but there's a thing in our nation right now and in the world a lot. It's called a cancel culture. Mm -hmm. 
that if you believe something different than what the norm is, we'll cancel you out. You won't find work. You won't find this. Everyone's going to shun you. Everyone's going to say you're a bad person. You're basically canceled. And so that's another type where you're like, you're, you're, you're murders um, and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. If you take a look at what this is, you're going to find a lot of it comes through the similitudes. And we've covered those things, so we won't go into it, but you deal with the murders. Are you angry without a cause? You deal with the adulteries. Have you lusted after? The fornications the same way. The thefts, taking things. Um, it even goes to coveting, false witnesses, lying. And then, of course, the blasphemies, where, where you literally change the doctrine to what you want to do and, and just declaring that the things are God, that are of God, aren't of God. And that's where they were saying to Jesus, no, you, you healed this man because of Beelzebub, not because of the power of God. And so he says now in verse 20, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. What really defiles and what doesn't defile? Peter learned a great lesson in the book of Acts chapter 10. Peter was there on the coast, and as he was there on the coast, declares this, Acts chapter 10, verse 9, the next day as they went on their journey, they drew near to the city where Peter was on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. The sixth hour means that it's right around noon. Um, so you're, the day, you know, of course, six o'clock in the morning, and then to noon, now it becomes the sixth hour. So he's right around noon. He's up on this housetop. The sun is there. Verse 10, he became very hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open in an object like a great sheet bound to the four corners, descending to him and let down from, let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean which is a really nice thing for Peter to do. I mean, so I've never done anything to transgress what I knew to be dietary. And a voice, verse 15, spoke to him a second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So as God puts down this sheet, he tells Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter puts those words together that I don't think always fit, not so and Lord. Those three words should never be side by side like that. Um, and in verse 16, this was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven. Now while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius, a Gentile, and had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And then verse 18 and 19, they call and they ask whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit came and said, Behold, three men are seeking you. Verse 20, arise and go down without them doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Don't worry that they come from a Gentile. It's all right. I got a plan for this whole thing. So it's one of those things where I think it's important to recognize where in verse 20 of Matthew 15, he says, These things which defile these are the things which defile a man. In other words, the things that come out of the heart. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile a man. Verse 21. 
Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. I want to pause here for just a second. We see here that this woman now comes and is revealing with this external versus internal. I want you to see here that this, this woman uses this term on the external, where in verse 22, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. What she's doing is she's using a term that is basically messianic. And the term is something that a Jew would use for Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It's a term that deals with the messianic. But what happens is this. Jesus has left the Galilee area, verse 21. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's going up the Lebanese coast. And so Tyre is right around 35 to 40 miles an hour, oh, miles an hour, 35 to 40 miles away from Galilee. And, and Sidon is, is about 60 miles away from Galilee. So he's traveled quite a distance. And through this, he's now up in that area of the Gentiles. So as he's there, there was a woman of Canaan. So she was a Canaanite. She was a Gentile. And she came to that reason and she cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So here she's coming. And remember how the, the Pharisees wanted the disciples to be external. You need to do this tradition. You need to do this external thing she looks and she says i want this jesus to see an external part of me i'm going to be like the jews have mercy upon me O lord son of david it was interesting when when she calls him O lord son of david here's a gentile speaking like a jew what does jesus do verse 23 he answered her not a word I don't need you to come externally. I don't need you to come like that. I need you to come not like a Jew would come because you're not a Jew. Don't pretend to be a Jew. Don't come as this external righteousness. I'm coming and I'm using the terms the Jew would use. So he answered not a word. But the disciples came and urged us saying, send her away for she cries out after us. He doesn't answer her as she's calling him son of David. He ignores her, but eventually she just keeps yelling and calling and calling. And so the disciple, like, would you do something with this woman? And he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he makes a statement, I was sent to Israel first. I was sent to them. So if he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, the question would be this. Why is he up in Sinai? Why is he up in, you know, tired? And so there has to be something that's going on with this. 
I want to share with you that Jesus himself made, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I want to take a moment and share with you just a couple of things because what happens is this, there's a movement within the church and that movement within the church has this, um, this mindset of thinking that here, Jesus Christ, when, when he had um, raised from the dead and all of a sudden that he sent the disciples out to the Gentiles and the church is now, you know, the, the working that God is going through through this age of grace. They have this belief that the church has replaced Israel as far as all the promises of God. The promises that God made to Israel are now all squashed, and now they come back to the church. And this term is called replacement theology. The church replaces Israel as far as being that beautiful apple of God's eye. And understand, Paul is going to make some statements. I want to read to you two verses just to clarify both found in the book of Romans. The first one is found in Romans 10, verse 1. The next is found in Romans 11, verse 1. But read the two chapters because they bring a lot of clarity. I just want to read these two to you. But in Israel, de declaring about Israel in Romans 10, 1, Brethren, Paul says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He wants them to come as all Israel is going to come. And then in verse 11 of Romans, in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Romans, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So we see here that they say, well, you know, the churches replace it. You're, you're missing. Apparently you haven't read Romans. God has Israel, and Israel is the true vine. We are a wild vine that has been grafted on, and God warns us. He says, listen, if I can take off a natural vine that isn't surrendered to me, I can take away a wild vine just as easy. So don't boast about you because you're not the natural vine you're not the initial one that i made these promises and covenants to i made it to abraham and his descendants made it to abraham and to his seed so yes i've come to the lost sheep of israel but i'm still able to minister and so he as he makes that statement i was not sent except to the lost sheep of israel it doesn't mean that hey You'll never minister to the Gentiles. No, he goes to Israel first as Israel rejects. Then God uses the Gentile to bring the nation of Israel to a point of jealousy. I want what you have. I want a relationship with Yahweh. Why don't I have it? I don't seem to be experiencing through all these rules and regulations, all the rituals and the foods. Remember in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus came, and he was a ruler of the Jews. He was, he was a, a very wealthy man and, a, and high in society and a very religious man. And he looked at Jesus and he saw something different in Jesus, something that he didn't have, something that all the rules and regulations didn't do for him. Because he looked at Jesus and said, I know that you're a God. Because no one can do the things that you do unless God were with him. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You have to be born again. 
He simply says, you've got to come into a right relationship. You literally, you have this natural birth. You have to have a spiritual birth. You need this Holy Spirit that can only come through receiving me. And there's a deeper work that has to be done in your relationship. So Nicodemus saw something in Jesus. He had a relationship with the Father that was pure and intimate. Nicodemus had all these rules and rituals and regulations that he didn't have intimacy with the Father. That's why I said, I see something different in you, Jesus. What is it that's with you that I can't experience what you're experiencing? Jesus said, you can. All you have to do is be born again. Surrender. Let the Holy Spirit come and fill you. What we see here is Jesus said, I was not called, sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in verse 25 now of Matthew 15, then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. I want you to see she's no longer external. Lord, son of David. She's now simply Lord. She's moved from this external, I want you to see an external part of me, to now being just bared open to the inside. And she says, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good. Now, he didn't say, I can't. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, he's not calling her a dog as far as, you know, you're ugly like a dog or something. He's calling her a little puppy. Now, the, the Jews had a term for the Gentiles. They would call them Gentile dogs. Jesus is really making it nice. He's, he's calling her, you're just this little puppy. And everyone knows that, you know, sometimes you don't like dogs, but everyone loves little puppies. I mean... They're so cute. How could you not love little puppies? So we see here, he just says, you're, it's not good to give the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So notice what she does. She goes from son of David to now calls him the Lord and master. But she's not saying, I'm a Jew. She's calling the Lord. She's calling the master. She says, Lord, help me. And she says, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumb which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, it's interesting here that what we see is her coming to a place of humility, her responding to that that work of Christ. See, Christ didn't answer her because it really wasn't her that was calling him. It was her pretending to be a Jew calling him. She doesn't, he doesn't want the external. I'm not going to respond to the external, but I'll respond to the internal. And I think that's the heart because what was happening is this. There's a passage in 1 Kings chapter 5. Let me read it to you. Wait, strike that. 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, in the second Kings chapter five, what happens is there's this healing that begins to take place. And so there is um, Naaman, who's a commander of the, the Lord's army. And then there's Elisha, the prophet. Now, Naaman, if you take a look at second Kings chapter five, the very first couple of verses, it says, now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory over Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. He had all these things going for him. And it says, yeah, he was this great man. And, and uh, you know, he had, the Lord had given him victory. And he was a mighty man of valor. 
but he was a leper. Now keep in mind that he was a Syrian. He was there on the northern part of Israel. And he was a commander of the army, and yet as a Syrian, verse 2 says here, saying Kings chapter 5, the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a young captive girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. She says, Listen, I know that he is he's taken me as a slave. I know that I should be home in Samaria. That's where I live. I know that I'm a captive here and I'm his slave. I understand all that. And I'm still going to bless my master. If he was only there, there's a prophet there that could heal him. Now with everything about Naaman and which he is, it talks about how he was great and honorable and a mighty man of valor. One thing that we don't see about him that wasn't on the list initially as far as the Syrian list is his pride issue. If you want to follow a little further in 2 Kings chapter 5 and go to verse um, 8, it says, So it was that when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me. And he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. When Naaman went with his horses and chariot, he stood by Elisha's house. So he comes in this pomp and circumstances, horses, and chariots, not, not just walking. I'm coming in horses and chariots. I'm coming showing my power and my amazing, you know, who I am. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger. He sends just this, this scribe. He sends a nobody. He sends a squib to him. And Elijah just sends this messenger. And the messenger says, just go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. Now, at this point, he says, okay, I want to be healed of my leprosy. This, this messenger comes out and says, you need to go wash in the Jordan, dip seven times, you'll be clean. Now, you think, thank you for the message, go to the Jordan, right? But notice what happens. Verse 11, Naaman became furious, went away, and indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord. He'll wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. It wasn't just enough to tell me what I needed to do. You need to show me that I'm great. You need to come out yourself. You need to call on the Lord. You need to hocus pocus with your hands. You need to do all of that. Wave your hands all over the place. Heal me of my leprosy. Do something great because I'm great. Don't send this messenger saying, go jump in the Jordan. Why do that? Verse 12, are not the Arbana, the far part of the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash them and be clean? And he went away in a rage. Now, it's interesting that pride and anger were not listed there in the first of his, his accomplishments. Don't know why, but if I had to write a resume about myself, I probably wouldn't include that either. You see, his resume, you see what he's really like, and all of a sudden, his own servant in verse 13 and his servants came near and spoke saying my father what if the prophet told you to do something great would he not have done it how much more than when he says to you wash and be clean and it's amazing that what we see here is he went down verse 14 and he dipped seven times in the jordan according to the saying of the man of god now 
you have to understand that what he's really saying is this. He went down and dipped seven times according to the messenger. What he said were the words of the man of God. That's what he really did. He humbled himself. You see here this, this, this man who is prideful and he's great and he's honorable. He's a man of valor and he's mighty in the eyes of his master. All these things, but yet he's very prideful and very arrogant and very angry and he's quick to a temper. But yet he humbled himself and he went down and he dipped. You have to understand that this is a Gentile who humbled himself and received a touch of God. Now here's the catch. You read a little further into the chapter. Eventually what happens, he wants to come and he wants to just give Elisha all these things. And he says, no, no, just, I don't want anything that you have. Just, just go. You're, you're fine. God wanted us to bless you. And what happens is this, in verse 19, he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from a, a short distance. Now, remember, he wanted to have all of these things. And so, but, but Elisha said, listen, I, I don't want anything of yours. I don't want to take anything of you. You just, you, you go in peace. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, of the man of God, said, look, my master has spared Naaman, the Syrian, while not receiving anything from his hand, which he has brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him, and I will take something from him. Understand what's happening. The Gentile is humbled and has to work on the inside. There's this inside cleansing that goes on of the leprosy because we know leprosy is an internal thing that, that just wipes out the, the feelings. And, and here, the servant, the Jew, Gehazi, says, I got to go deal with this external. Now, not, not to be glad that he had the internal. I'm going to deal with the external. Gehazi, if you want to call who Naaman is, I would say Naaman is like the woman whose daughter needed to be healed. Gehazi is like the Pharisees. And he comes, he wants this external. So what happens is, verse 21, Gehazi pursued Naaman. And then when Naaman saw him run after him, he got down from his chariot and met him. And he said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophet have come to me from the mountain of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And so Nathan, verse 23, says, well, please take two talents. And he urged him, and he, he bound two talents of silver and two bags and two changes of garments, and he handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead. So he comes and gets. Now, remember what happens? Gehazi gets the leprosy. He gets the leprosy. And I want you to read verse 27, because this is key. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever, and he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. I want you to notice something that's missing with Gehazi. Repentance. Gehazi doesn't say, how can I be cleansed of my leprosy? What can I do? How can I repent? It simply says, he just went away leprous. The Gentile comes in leprous and comes out, goes out clean. The, the, the servant who's there, the Jew, who's like a Pharisee, he is clean, but he goes out leprous. Why? Because we really know what's inside the heart. The heart of, of 
Naaman was angry and bitter and arrogant, and Gehazi was selfish. I want stuff. We need stuff. Here's stuff. And Gehazi gets dealt with in the most radical way. But I find it interesting that the Gehazi doesn't say, wow, if Naaman could be healed of the leprosy, couldn't I be? He just doesn't. He accepts it and he walks. He has no problem with that being a part of his life or a problem of his descendants. And so we see here, and I just think it's so important that Gehazi didn't just understand grace. He didn't understand the heart of God. He didn't understand the healing. So again, we see a Gentile cleanse and the Jew what? Sorry, it's not for you. So as we look into this, Elisha was sent to the children there of Israel, but when a Gentile came, Gentile humbled himself, a Gentile receives the touch of God. And that's the same thing that happens here with this woman. Remember now, back in Matthew 15, verse 28, Jesus answered and said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. In other words, what? Man, your daughter, just consider her dumped seven times in the Jordan. Just know that by faith, this is what's happened. Her daughter was healed from that very hour. So here's this, this woman who has a daughter who's demon-possessed through a word of Christ where he just says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. He doesn't call her daughter. He calls her woman. But she still receives that healing that Jesus offers. And then in verse 29, we see here that Jesus departed from there and he skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up to the mountain and sat down there. And when the multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, they laid them down at Jesus' feet and healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking. And the maimed made whole and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days, and have had nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Now, that to me is just, you know what? When people say there are no stupid questions, they're wrong. There are stupid questions. Now, granted, stupid questions need still to be answered, but there are some questions that really, where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a multitude? Well, let me see. Jesus was teaching, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children. They had five loaves and two fishes, and they were all glutted. And here now they're saying, where, where can we get enough food? So Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? So he answered, where can we get the food? How much do you have? Seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who, were, who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, and he got into a boat, and he came to the region of Magdala. At this point, there are some people who say that the feeding of the 4,000 is the same as the feeding of the 5,000. I would disagree completely. There are too many differences that are within there. 
Jesus had just left the, the area of the Gentiles. And there are many scholars who believe that because of this term, when we're looking at the, the passage there earlier in Matthew, when Jesus goes and he you know, feeds and fills the multitude, one of the things that would happen was this, is when he fed the multitude, and eventually as he comes up and he picks up these, these baskets there in chapter 14, it says in verse 20, so they were all even filled, they took up 12 baskets full of the, the, the fragments that remain. And that, that term is kafinus, um, which is just a small basket. Well, here what happens is, in verse 37, they took up seven large baskets full of fragments, and the, the word here is spirus. The small baskets that are talked about here in um, Matthew 14, verse 20, those would that would be more of a Jewish term for the baskets. Now, here what happens is in, in verse 37 of Matthew 15, this would be more of a Greek word for baskets. It would be, and most commentators believe that this is a Gentile basket. It's not just this little basket that you would have for lunch or something, but you would have this giant basket that would be there. It would be more like a hamper. So just the term baskets and how they do it, what most commentators believe, and I would agree with them because as you see this context, that in the context of the 5,000, they were Jews. In the context here of the 4,000, there were Jews mixed with Gentiles. And so you see this ministry that goes out, it wasn't just a feeding to the Jews initially, to the Jews first. But then after, now he just got done healing this woman and as Jesus now departs from there, he skirts the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't go just down, but he kind of goes off to the side of it. They believe that there were many who had been following him for days. Now, if you think of here where we talked about, you know, how far away that they were, that here, um, Sidon is about 60 miles from Galilee. So he's up in the Tyre and Sidon, Sidon area. If you walk on an average, and this is where they would travel about 20 miles a day, that was considered an average day's walk. Um, when you would travel that in a day, 60 miles from Sidon is what? You're back to Galilee, that's three days. So you're looking at here this multitude following for three days, coming from the region of Tyre and Sidon. As he's now coming back, they're now following. So. I want you to see that many of the things are the same. That one, Jesus takes what you have, you give it to the Lord, he blesses, he breaks it. So we've talked about that before. I don't want to get into just repeating messages because if you want that, just you know, grab onto the last message that we did. And um, you know, a couple weeks ago, and then you'll say, oh, I don't understand about being broken. But here he talks about here, when the disciples said we couldn't get enough bread, he says, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? We have loaves, we have fish, seven and a few little ones. He commands the multitude once they get to sit down on the ground. So there's order. There's not chaos, there's order. He now takes the seven loaves, the fish, verse 36. He breaks them, gives them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So once again, they give it to him, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives it back to them, and they continue in that ministry. So just keep in mind that the baskets are different. 
And the reason the baskets are different and why I believe that Matthew states not just a basket, but he's very specific in the basket. The first in, in are the Jewish baskets. These are the Gentile baskets. And after he does those, verse 38 makes a statement, those who, were, who ate were 4,000 men, not 5,000, 4,000. So there's a difference. And besides them, you had the men and the women. And he goes and he sends away the multitude and he gets into a boat and he goes to the area of Magdala. Now Magdala is where Mary and Magdalene was at. And so we'll, we'll, we'll be, when we get to her, we'll kind of look at that. So he, again, ministers to the people, blesses the people. And, and I think it's important to realize that what he does to the people, as we've been looking at the whole thing as far as the external versus the internal, the external versus the internal. Like the Pharisees wanted an external washing. Jesus says this is the internal heart. They would say, you know, it's not what goes into a man from the external to the internal, but what comes out of a man from the internal to the external. That's what defiles a man. This woman who says, I'm going to pretend on the external. He says, I want your internal. But what here, what Jesus does is this. He realizes that although I want your heart, sometimes we have to deal with what? We have to deal with the external. There's sometimes that the external that you're in such a place where you can't open up or even deal with the internal because the external is in so much turmoil. And what happens is this, you've got to sometimes bring peace to that external so that you can deal with the internal. And I love how the Lord, he doesn't just say, well, we're not going to ever deal with the external because I'm only dealing with the internal. God, he's, he's a complete service man. He deals, he, he tells us the important thing is the internal, but he also understands that there are simply external things that need to be dealt with. And so, although they aren't the priority, they aren't to be discounted. And I think it's important. You know, Paul would say what? Bodily exercise does profit a little. It's, it's not a bad thing to exercise and do things. It does have a profit, but the key being is what? Don't just focus on the external. You got to deal with the internal. That's always the key. But the Lord begins to say what? Yeah, the internal is, is necessary, but sometimes you've got to help the external be at that point where it's no longer screaming at you because these people here have been three days without food. They haven't had anything. They're still following me. Let's deal with that. And sometimes just that ministry is there. And when you deal with that external, then you're able to do what? You're able to deal with the internal. There's a statement that comes with the, the ministry. And I don't know who initiated it. There's, I've heard different things. I will just tell you the statement and tell you I don't know who initiated it. I can tell you that it's not mine. Um, but the, the statement is this. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's called discipleship. And sometimes you have to minister to certain things. They got to know that you care about those things before what they, 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 they will even, they need to know that you care before they care what you know. And so it's just a great thing. It's a balance. And, and don't make no mistake about it. This here feeding of the 4,000 should be in this section with dealing with the external and internal. Because there are sometimes there are certain exceptions that need to be made. And Jesus shows us how beautifully that exception is dealt with and how beautifully that is used to minister to the people. So to that end, 
We will deal with the internal and let that be and not worry so much about the external, but understand there are certain times in wanting to minister that we'll need to do that. Well, let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful to you. You through your wisdom, you through your Holy Spirit would just anoint Matthew to pen these words, to declare these truths. And Father, teach us, teach us. If we are caught up on the external, we are caught up on rules and regulations, if that's our motivation, Lord, and not just loving you, not just letting you just rule and reign in our hearts, but we want all the outward to be looking just right. Father, help us to no longer want to see ourselves as anything with pride. Let us not see ourselves as Naaman saw himself, thinking that you need to do some mighty work and show how wonderful we are. But Father, we would humble ourselves. We would humble ourselves. We would strip ourselves bare in a sense as Naaman would have to strip off all of that armor to, to go into the water. Father, help us to just take away all that external and, and let you do the washing that you need to do through your spirit. And so we lay our lives again at your feet. And we're so grateful for this teaching, so grateful that there's a balance. But asking, Lord, that you would show us what areas that you need us to work in, what areas you want to do through your word and your spirit. Teach us these things that we don't have to come to you pretending we're something we're not. We have to come to you honestly. And so bring us to that end of ourselves and our pride and our arrogance and let us come humbly before you and allow you, our great God and Savior, to do what you do so well. Heal, minister, bless. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.